0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, today we speak with James Dubrow, longtime specialist in organized crime, about the killing of Pat Musitano this past weekend. Not everybody is on board with bringing the Commonwealth Games bid to Hamilton. We spoke to one of the people that's behind an online petition. And staying with sports, well, what can we expect to see as the hockey players get back on the ice in the umbrella of COVID-19? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, uh, obviously the news that everybody was talking about over this past weekend... Uh, was the uh, the killing of pa- Pat Musitano, which happened on Friday afternoon in Burlington, in broad daylight, uh, in a, a very busy strip mall in Burlington. Uh, he was gunned down. His uh, bodyguard is seriously injured. Uh, no arrests have been made. Police are seeking uh, information about what may or may not have happened. Uh, a number of people were in the area, obviously, because it was right in the middle of the business day. Daniela DiFovano was one of them, and, uh, well, this is what she had to say.
1: It's very, very quiet. I mean, like, nobody bothers you. You know, I can go out for walks and never, like, fear anything. Like, I, I mean, like I said, I live right here. I'm, like, out all the time, grocery shopping down the street. I mean, running to the gas station convenience store. I'll bike. Like, I'll do, and it's not, like, I don't fear anything ever.
0: Uh, she's speaking, of course, about the neighborhood on Plains Road. Uh, for those of you who know the Burlington area, it's uh, pretty much right across the road from where the Shoppers Drug Mart is there on Plains Road. And uh, obviously this place was cordoned off for the last little while. So why did this happen? What are the implications? So well, while we're pleased to welcome back to the program, James Dubro, who is a well-known and longtime crime writer and researcher and a specialized in a specialist rather in organized crime. James, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today.
1: Yeah,
2: good morning, Bill. Uh, happy July 13th.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Trying to keep score and take back of what's going on. Yeah. James, as we were talking about this over the weekend, and a number of people have weighed in on this, the consensus seemed to be uh, that it was not a matter of if this was going to happen, it was when it was going to happen.
2: I said it right here on your show many times the last yep. uh, year. You know, it, it had to happen. I mean, he, There were so many, it was almost comical how many attempts were made in his life. I shouldn't say comical, but it was like a comic opera. I mean... Uh, the shooting in Mississauga where he was shot a number of times. He had a, a body uh, armor thing on, but but he almost died then. The the car from hit car from Montreal that uh, went went to his house and that aging bodyguard who was uh, injured the other day was uh, saved his life by slamming his car into the hit vehicle. Do you remember that?
0: Yeah. That was only
2: ten months ago, uh, and the fact that. Pat satana it says a lot about his mob leadership his failed mob leadership that that he would have a 70 late 70s bodyguard <laughs> who actually isn't that bad considering he saved his life once this year as his main uh, protection um he had an armored vehicle he, he was wearing a bulletproof vest but that doesn't help you when you're shot in the head and mind you he could have uh, he could have uh, fled. He could. He knew he was. A, he was a marked man. He decided to to die with his boots on and continue with his nefarious criminal activities and take what what may and of course what may happen. Uh, I'm sure uh, Hamilton and the mob will
0: survive. Well, let's talk about that. Uh, you know, We keep talking about the Musitano crime family. Uh, with yeah. with his death, is there a, a Musitano crime family? No,
2: not really, no. Uh, no, in fact, you know, Dominic Musitano, his father, uh, and to a lesser extent, uh, Angela, uh, Dominic was a respected Don, involved in all sorts of things. Not that he was that great a guy, but he, you know, he was a businessman. He, he ran... Uh, Hired dumps, he ran auto body shops, and he was involved in unions, um, a trucking union for one. Uh, he was a respected guy. He he had a little finesse. Pat took over too young. He was 24. All he had done in his career is torch places. And when he took over uh, after his father died in the mid-90s, he was only about 24, 25. And he immediately went after some of the other bosses in Hamilton to to enlarge his territory, and he had Johnny Papalia killed, and uh, had Cameron Barilero killed, and tried to kill uh, Jimmy uh, Jimmy Lapino, the head of the Lapino crime family, so to consolidate his power. Now he succeeded in getting rid of the Papalias, but it antagonized everyone. You know, and uh, after he got out of jail for for one of those murders, uh, he was a marked man, going back for ten or twelve years now. And uh, the old, the older Calabrian mob families like the Violi and Lepina, uh and others, and some of the newer ones coming from Italy, uh, and some in the middle, there's about 10 or 12, in the uh, greater Toronto, greater Hamilton areas, they all had him on their list to go. <laughs> he had no allies anymore since Rizzuto died of natural causes about seven years ago, so he had no allies left. Now, there is one brother... Dominic, who's still around, but he was never, to my knowledge, uh, involved in the day-to-day workings of anything to do with the, the, family, the crime family. He's more involved in union activity, uh, and I think he would uh, stay clear <laughs> uh, that's the the one possibility of any. No, but I would say there's no Luciano crime family. No, it's gone.
0: James, you've written extensively over the years about, well, let's call it the org structure, okay? I mean, the the Musitanos, the the Papalias, but usually somebody had their back, you know. And you mentioned, uh, you know, the the Rizzuto family. Uh, I have relatives in Buffalo and Niagara Falls, New York, and they always talk about the Magadino family, back in the 60s, anyway. Yeah, Uh, the
2: Magadinos Magadinos and Todaros are now supporting uh, very much in the Violi group, so.
0: Okay. And, 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 and of course, that goes all the way. To, to Montreal and New York and, and a number yeah. of other different cities, right? Right, 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 right. Is, is that... You,
2: is, go ahead. Sorry, I, gonna, I finished the question. I'm sorry. I no, I was just going
0: to say, is that structure still in place? And if so, who's who now?
2: Oh, gosh. Well, those structures are in place, but I would say that what's left of the Magadino family and the Todaro families, and uh, Todaro actually uh, ran it after Magadino and is another Todaro now. It's very weakened in Buffalo, so much so that one of the Violis was was considered to be the underboss in Buffalo, which is, (laughs) when you consider someone from Hamilton being in the underboss of Buffalo, it was always the other way around, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, New York is... uh, Banana family still around, but very weak. Uh, Montreal, uh, there's more of a cluster of groups. You know, there's obviously what remains of the Rizzuto family run by one of the Rizzutos and another close associate of Nick and... uh, But there are other big uh, Haitian gangs and street gangs and bikers. That It's kind of a, a group of people that run the underworld in Montreal. So it's not the same structure at all. And as I say, Lusitano had absolutely no support from anyone at this stage. He did, before the Papalia hit, he had some support in Buffalo. Certainly a lot of support in Montreal afterwards, but no, none of this... He was basically a failed mob boss, you know. I mean, some people can rise to it. He, he was feared by a lot of people because he was almost a psychotic killer in the way that Carmine Valenti was in the 80s. He just wanted to kill people, you know, kill them, get rid of them. That way you take over. But he wasn't respected. And you have to be respected on the street to survive as a, as a mafia leader. It's, it's an old, tired concept, but it's true. If you aren't respected in the street, you're nobody
0: was uh you talked about his inability and his youth obviously when he took over the family uh, yeah. uh, uh, but was the turning point for him uh, the day that he became a mark man the day that papalia was killed i mean because well, a lot of people are speculating james as you know that, that what happened on friday was 23 years ago but it was a payback for the papalia killing
1: well i wouldn't put it
2: that way exactly i mean in a way it is but in a way it isn't i mean don't Forget that that murder wasn't solved right away. It, it, they turned a uh, the hitman Ken Murdoch, who I interviewed mm-hmm. a few years yeah. ago. A few years later, and so when that when Ken Murdoch when the trial of Pat and his brother Angelo uh, took place, that was probably the turning point, not the actual shooting of Papalia, because not only was it revealed that through Kenny the hitman that uh, that Pat and Angelo had. Ordered the execution, demanded the execution of Johnny Papalia and Carmine uh, Barilero, his lieutenant. But they were also going after other crime bosses, as I mentioned earlier, including the leader of the Lupino family. And that just <laughs> that—that's the kiss of death, you know. When you you're known to be going after all your all your people, all the all the, the main mafia families. So what he did after he got out of jail was to ally himself with the. Uh, Rizzuto's, but that wasn't enough. And then Rizzuto passed on anyway, and there was a lot of problems in the Rizzuto family. So I wouldn't say, though, that this was revenge for what happened to Johnny Papelia, because that revenge would have happened. Remember, Johnny Papalia was at the end of his career, a very long mm-hmm. career of uh, being a boss, you know, major boss in Southern Ontario. But, um, you know, there was his brother Frankie, there was his brother Rocco. Uh, they didn't retaliate at all after after they just gave up they uh Musatanos were worried that come barrelero papalia's lieutenant was going to retaliate that's why they killed him and that seemed to put it actually did end the papalia crime family rocco papalia is now an old man in retirement frank papalia died of old age uh the papalia family is no more and that's because of what the Musitanos did and the- so you could say it, it wasn't direct revenge, is what I'm trying to say, uh, Bill. Uh, it wasn't as if some chief guy in the Patria crime family, which doesn't even exist anymore, said, "Let's let's let's take out Pat." Everyone there, but- wanted to take out Pat.
0: James, as you and I have talked about, there have been a couple of other killings in the last couple of years. Uh, Quite a
2: few, actually. Uh,
0: and they've many of them related to the Musitano crime family. We're told. Right. Uh, was this a, a systematic elimination of the the, the crime family by, by somebody? Well, was it schemed? was it a plan?
2: Well, there have been teams of hitmen going after uh, Pat and his allies, but there are also other people. Remember, there's been, there's been considerable rivalry among the Andrangheta families in southern Ontario in the last 10 years for all the reasons we talked about, the Rizzuto death, uh, all the things, the Papalia death. So there's a lot of things going on. Um, you know, and uh, Cease Lapino's murder could have been something that, uh, since the rivalry between Lapino and Lusitano was pretty open, uh, Violi talked about killing... Angela Musettaro in a wiretap in his drug trial a few a couple of years ago, and and that they should get Pat next by Christmas. Um, you know, th- this is a well-known rivalry, so maybe uh, Pat stupidly had Lapino killed, uh, the cousin of uh, um, of the main Lapino guy. Then there was a there was a, another attack on Natale Lapino and, and Nat Lapino um where some hitmen from Montreal uh, were involved there's been quite a lot going on there was the, uh, the killing of Yavaroni. uh there's you know quite a few families and there's a lot there's, there's not that much turf to fight over uh, in terms of drugs and gambling it's mostly the uh, internet gambling and the drugs uh and the street stuff some of the street stuff but not a lot of it uh left um and, and there's not a lot of territory to fight over. There has been a, a more general war going on amongst Andranguda cells. You know, there's a myth that the Calabrian Mafia, the silly mafia, this unified group run by people in Italy in Soderno or Palermo, but it isn't it isn't like that. I mean there are ruling commissions and everything. But everything is these 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 cells, these families, they're pretty much Uh, make their own way and they fight each other all the time And there's very little um, order. (laughs) You know, and basically the way to get more power is to eliminate another family. And that's what's happening a lot. Then the police, of course, have have done a job in in going after some of the families too. Not the last the Musitano family haven't been very effective lately in getting him. And he's been involved. There's another area where Pat Musatano has marked. He scams so many innocent people in the Havana Group uh, land scam, that was that was pretty bad. And in fact, it was, he was going to see his lawyer in that case, someone suing him. But that was a pretty, and there was really nothing there, and, and, and Pat Musitano got very much into that. You would think people would know better than to do business with such a notorious and reliable person as Pat Musitano, but you no. Know,
0: well, you, as you know, i had a couple of business enterprises off and on here in the Hamilton-Dundas area over the last little while. Listen, i got to ask you, we're just about out of time, but I'm, I'm always fascinated by your research and your work on this. Are you working on anything right now? That's a good question.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been doing work on documentaries, um, yeah. proposed documentaries and things like that, but I'm I'm actually not working on a book right now, but I may be soon.
0: Well, the uh, motivation's certainly there, <laughs> and there's not an, yeah. no no lack of material. James, always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much on a, a very busy day to share some yeah. time with us today and give us your perspective. We'll talk again soon. Good to soon. talk to you, Bill. Take care. Okay. James Dubrow, of course, a well-known crime writer and uh, specialist in organized crime. Uh, some great books. Just uh, Google him and get some of those titles. Uh, he's done an awful lot of research about what's gone on uh, here in the Canadian and specifically in the uh, southern Ontario region. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show Podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the NHL teams have started their training camps, Leafs among others, uh, and, uh, well, in the shadow of covid 19 of course with this tournament that's coming up in the first week of august and uh we'll get the lowdown on what's happening uh from uh, sean fitzgerald a little bit later on this hour also uh more feedback and more fallout from uh the we charity fiasco that's uh ongoing now in ottawa these days we'll give you an update and uh, some perspective on that just after 11:30. but right now as we told you on the program a week or so ago uh, hamilton city council has decided to listen to and uh, and uh I guess at some point evaluate uh details about the bid for the commonwealth games the 2026 commonwealth games uh for the city of hamilton and we all know the background I guess it was supposed to be hamilton 100 uh, the 2030 games which are the 100th anniversary of the commonwealth games and the first ones were here at hamilton so there was a a, a, a perspective there and maybe a sentimental perspective well that's not going to happen it's going to be 2026 which is even sooner but not everybody's in favor of this whole idea uh and uh, there's an online petition that's uh, being sent uh, around that we're going to tell you in just a couple of seconds. But we wanted to give you that perspective and some of the concerns there. Uh, one of the people behind the petition is Ian Borsick, a local Hamilton resident, uh, who has expressed his opposition to this, and we'll talk about uh, the petition in a second. Ian, thank you for joining us on the program. Good to have you with us today. Thanks
1: so much for having me on, Bill. Great to talk to uh,
0: you. Well, I'll, and we'll, we'll talk about the petition in just a couple of minutes here. But let's let's talk about about your concerns about what you've mm-hmm. heard so far.
1: Yeah, so I was skeptical of the 2030 bid, but as you said, it was uh, you know well a decade well away, and there was the sentimental quality, and there was quite a bit of uh, organization being uh, undertaken. But as we know, these big sporting events um, quite often don't generate the positive results for cities that they that, as promised uh, when it comes to things like housing and investment in public infrastructure, and the new revised bid for 2026 within the current uh, context that we're finding ourselves in financially and with public health-wise with the pandemic. Um, has really raised my concern, and I uh, wanted to provide uh, Hamiltonians a way of uh, making that known to City Council before they make a final decision.
0: The, the concern here, of course, uh, is that uh, things tend to get dumped into one basket. Now, I, the research I've done on this, and I'm sure you've done extensive research on this as well, is uh, if there is one set of games that does seem to deliver, and I, I, you know, that's a term that we could use advisedly, it seems to be the Commonwealth Games. There have been some great success stories in other places where the games have been held in the past. Uh, but you're still skeptical that it's going to happen here.
1: Yeah, and I think really, if uh, if the games have uh, this possibility of generating uh, all the benefits that are being promised, I think um, you know the questions that city councils have raised, such as why aren't any other cities applying to bid for this uh, for these games? Um, why isn't that the case? Why was it revised for 2026 um, as opposed to 2030? There, the, the Hamilton 100 website used to have a long list of. Uh, community supporters and then with the revised bid uh, those community supporters seem to be missing from their website and I think there's a lot of questions being uh, left here where we have city staff being pulled away from their you know regular duties because of the pandemic Uh, we have when what you know considering one city staffer uh, out of all of uh, all the city staffers working on climate change issues we've made cuts to transit where asking the federal and provincial uh, governments for emergency funding because we are in a financial hole, and then we're talking about spending you know hundreds of millions of dollars on what is essentially a tourism event, and I'm very skeptical that any public dollars and staff time should be continuing to go to this when there's so many other pressing issues that are re- really coming to the forefront uh, because of the pandemic.
0: Yeah, we should remind our listeners that we really don't have all the details on this, and, and I'm assuming we'll get some, but probably not all. Of, uh, of what the, the the bid group is proposing when they uh, go before council in a couple of weeks' time, uh, let me ask you, Ian. We're uh, getting into the hypothetical here. If in fact council decides, yeah, we want to take a shot at this, and they're not being asked to make a commitment on this yet, and they won't be in August, but they're going to have to pretty soon at some point. Uh, what if they were going to go through with this? Is there anything that they could add to this, or anything in in the bid itself that would uh, that might change your mind about this? Well,
1: you know, I think um, the suggestion that was made by Kodra Danti, who's the a, executive director of the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion, mm-hmm. um, which was a legally binding uh, community benefits agreement between both the bid organizers, the city and uh, the wider community and any other in- institutions involved would be good.
0: Yeah, I like um, that idea. But,
1: um, but, you know, but again, quite frankly, you know, to get to the point where, that's, where that is uh, an agreement that's being made, it's going to require a lot of staff time. And it's going to require city resources that are being stretched thin just last week at our Board of Health. Um, it was a contentious discussion about wh- whether we have the money to hire uh, epidemiologists, you know, per, you know, experts in pandemic planning and response. And it was a contentious issue of whether we have the money to hire those experts that are necessary to keep Hamiltonians healthy. Um, and yet uh, we can, you know, continue to dedicate staff time towards um a project that's being brought forward by let's be honest you're a hotel owner Um, and it appears really that the community hasn't been consulted on this right now there is no uh, technical uh, avenue for any resident other than the city bid uh, team to make a presentation or delegation to city council Um, so i think there's a, a lot of a lot of issues going on right now where it's you know, not a democratic decision being made, in my opinion, and there's a lot of financial questions to be to be answered.
0: In fairness, there's, there's more than one individual, of course, that's behind the person that the bid here. And there's an, a number of people that we're told uh, that had significant impacts in this. Uh, but we don't know what the city's commitment or what the ask is going to be. I mean, you know, I guess in a perfect world, you'd like to think the private sector could finance this by themselves probably not going to happen that way. So at some point, the city is going to have to make some sort of a decision on this. Uh, and we're hearing that uh, that maybe the end of September may be the deadline where they're going to have to you know, decide yes or no on a situation. So you would like to see some, some forum for the public to be able to weigh in on this?
1: Yeah, and so right now, um, city clerks have said to council that uh, receiving public delegations, as, as we usually did pre-pandemic, requires more technological and staff time yet Mm -hmm. um the bid team which is not city councillors is being invited to present to city council um yet there is no clear avenue for someone like me or any of the others who have signed the petition or anything like that to make a similar presentation to council um you know games like the commonwealth games and other similar events have played out in other cities there's a lot of evidence out there that uh the commonwealth games hasn't you know doesn't necessarily uh mean that we're going to get all the benefits being promised right now um and, you know, really, this is all very theoretical. And I, at the same time, uh, we're having this discussion during an unprecedented global pandemic that has put us into a financial hole. And I think really the city needs to think about the priorities and think about where that money that would be going to the games and going to staff time to uh, design and host these games, um, whether that is the best use of our public dollars.
0: So let's talk about we've got a minute or so left here. Let's talk about the petition itself uh, and and mm-hmm. how people can get in touch with you guys and, and if they want to join in on the petition.
1: Yeah. So if you the easiest way is the change.org petition, and if you just Google "Tell Hamilton Council No Public Money for Commonwealth Games," you can find it there. Uh, we also have a Twitter account Commonwealth No. Uh, is the Twitter handle there, and you can find it very easily there. Um, I also recommend folks to check out the letter that was written by the Hamilton Center for Civic Inclusion by Kojo Dempsey and uh, Carl uh, Carl uh, Andres as well, mm-hmm. um, as that letter also highlights a lot of uh, concerns that I have, and they dive into the you know the numbers and the the, the financial issues that are being raised. Um, but really, you know, I think really Hamiltonians just need to look into this and you know contact the city councilor and ask some questions because right now we uh, don't see a lot of those questions being asked and if we ask them now we can ensure that we get the answers that we want before council makes a final decision
0: well as we say they're going to make that presentation to council i guess in the early part of august and uh... If- my guess is there's probably about another five- or six-week window, and we hope there is going to be an opportunity in some way, shape, or form for folks like yourself and others that have some concerns to at least raise those and maybe get some answers. Ian, I know we're going to be talking again about this uh, in, the, in that time period, but I really do thank you for popping in today and giving us an update on what's going on. Thanks so much.
1: No, yeah, thank you so much, Bill, and uh, have a good rest of your day.
0: You too. Well, take care. Ian Borsak, of course, who was uh, uh, one of the folks behind that petition. And uh, as I say, we presented uh, the other side. Lou he has been on the show a, a couple of different times now. I don't know, and I guess most of us don't know, uh, exactly what the bid looks like now and just how much money is going to be involved, how much the games are going to cost. And clearly, uh, we're all hoping to get some of those answers uh, when they come before City Council in uh, in a couple of weeks' time uh this is the bill kelly show 900 chml nhl is uh, planning on starting up again soon of course with this uh, round robin tournament uh that they're going to be starting in august and teams are going to training camp right now uh what are the possibilities of covid 19 uh having some sort of an impact well <laughs> we'll ask the pittsburgh penguins about that the leafs apparently are, are so far so good sean fitzgerald is the managing editor and feature writer with the athletic he joins us here on the bill kelly show to talk about this how you doing sean
3: Okay, how you doing, Bill?
0: Excellent, excellent. I wanted to talk about the Leaf situation and some of the other teams. And I just noticed on Twitter today, was it eight or nine Pittsburgh Penguins now have been asked not to show up because they've been exposed? Uh, is 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 this the, uh, the the thin edge of the wedge? Are we going to see more of this stuff in the days ahead?
3: Well, the Penguins. It's I think it's nine players. Nine players. They okay. were exposed to someone who was exposed to someone who tested positive for COVID-19. So um, they're not they're not first cousins. They're sort of second cousins to COVID-19 in this. But, but yeah, I mean, we've seen, you know, Austin, you know, Austin Matthews was, you know, reported. Yeah. Um, and he's on the ice today. But, I mean, you know, the St. Louis Blues not that long ago had four players um, who had been out um, having an adult beverage or two and were, were found to have then tested positive for COVID. Teams in the United States – at this point, because nobody's in a bubble, you're just in your home market, they're basically just saying, look, guys, try and be smart, try and stay out of the bars, try and stay healthy. But, but yeah, I mean, for the next couple of weeks, you know, before they even get to this bubble, it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, who can physically distance and who can sort of, you know, seclude themselves in their homes and try and stay safe and
0: healthy for this tournament. Isn't that close to impossible? I mean, you know, boys will be boys. These are young men with a lot of money. Uh, and you know this—that's you know—they have a proclivity for wanting to socialize with each other and with other people. So I mean, what are the chances that they're going to just stay in the hotel room and then just wait until, until the plane ride to, to wherever the bubble is going to be?
3: Well, I mean, holy crap! Like anybody, anybody who's listening, either has you know is a baby boomer or has boomer parents, knows full well how difficult it is for people to follow public health orders. I mean. How many people have parents or relatives or friends right now listening to this right now who have gone into 14 different social bubbles or have ended up at a friend's cottage or gone somewhere else where, you know, we shouldn't be. It's a challenge for everybody. And the real unique challenge that, you know, these teams are going to be asking of their players is, you're basically living in a very high level, very privileged kind of prison that you're going to be in these hotels with these you know, sheets with very high thread counts, but you're going to be in the hotel in the rink, maybe in a rooftop, you know, swimming pool, but that's it. You can't go, you're not supposed to go to shoppers drug mart to get a a new toothbrush. You're not supposed to go to Walmart or, you know, you're not supposed to browse the aisles of Costco. Like you are just there to go to the hotel and play hockey. And, you know, as we're finding out now with, you know, relatives and friends, uh, that can be really, really difficult to enforce.
0: What's the quality of hockey going to be like? I mean, these guys, let's face it, you know, from the, the middle of March, they, have, they haven't all just been sitting around twiddling their thumbs. But, uh, I mean, there's been some time off now. There's going to have to be some lag time here. Is this little mini training camp that they're all having right now going to be uh, sufficient?
3: Yeah, I mean, the the Leafs are on the ice right now. Um, Some of these guys have been skating. I mean, you remember that, you know, this is the beginning of training camp, but they have been allowed small group workouts for some time. And and in some European countries, you know, guys never really left the ice. I mean, in Sweden, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, Sweden took a very different approach in terms of trying to contain this virus, which is they didn't. Um, So, you know, players have been on the ice there for quite some time. The difference, as the great cliche goes, of course, is that, you know, it's one thing to be skating and practicing and it's another to be skating around when somebody's trying to hit you in the mouth. And, and that'll be the real interesting part, you know, in, in a couple of weeks, if they are able to pull this off and get to playing is, you know, after this condensed training camp you know what kind of injuries might we see are we going to see a lot of hamstrings a lot of groin pulls a lot of things that you normally associate with somebody who maybe doesn't get you know the regular rhythm of a hockey training camp
0: they always say for instance in baseball spring training that uh, you know the hitters always have the advantage pitchers have to have some time who's going to have the advantage here the the, the goaltenders are they going to be sharp or is it is it the, the snipers the, the the goal scorers uh, the pasternak's and, and the crosby's and, and the austin matthews
3: yeah, it's a really interesting question because nobody's ever been through anything like this before. I mean, this is the time of year when this is hockey hibernation, right? Like the the yeah. rhythm of the clocks on these guys—they're not wired for this. This is this is the point where we're you know we're just past free agency. You know, all the big names have usually signed. This is where the the second tier of guys are waiting by the dock or, you know, up in the the cottage somewhere waiting for a call. But this is, we're entering the six-week phase where hockey usually shuts down. So, you know, for guys who have, you know, been skating up until mid-March and then try and stay in shape, like, like who knows? Like goalies, they've been working. They've been, they've been sliding around. They've been, you know, working with their coaches and small groups and skaters. But I, I, I really do think that it comes down to, you know, whose health sciences person is going to be the MVP. I mean, look back to last year, and it's it's Kawhi Leonard, right? Remember the, the load yeah. management thing? And that turned out to be maybe the second most important part of the entire run next to Kawhi Leonard himself. So who has the best health sciences person? I think that, that person could be the first to hoist the Stanley Cup whenever it's awarded.
0: There's going to be an awful lot of pressure on the quote-unquote superstars, though, to produce in a short period of time, isn't there?
3: Well, it's going to be—it's going to be just a sort of a circus. Like if you take a look at the schedule, you know, especially for that play-in round, it's not every other day all the way through. Um, you know, it, there is a, a couple back-to-backs in there. It is going to be very condensed, very intense, and you mix that in with the fact that you know guys aren't going to be sleeping in their own beds. They're going to be eating, you know, hotel food, albeit i that bet better hotel food than you and I will ever eat.
0: Probably. But they're going to be
3: doing that for a very long time, completely out of their element.
0: Well, we'll see how it rolls out, and uh, lots of news I, even before these guys hit the ice for the tournament as well. Sean, as always, thanks so much. Great talking with you again today. Stay healthy. Same to you. Take care. Sean Fitzgerald, of course, from The Athletic. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Kirby Duck Ford still holding his daily uh, news conferences uh, just after the noontime, of course, and he's going to do it again today. But it's expected today that we're going to get details about Ontario government moving to what he calls stage three of the reopening process uh, as we try to move away from the shutdown that we had because of COVID-19. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Sabrina Nanji. Sabrina, of course, works with uh, Queen's Park today, and we're always uh, pleased to have her here on 900CHML. Sabrina, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us today.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me, Bill.
0: Are you uh, surprised by this today, or that we're moving to this stage, if in fact it's uh, the speculation is true?
4: Um, uh, not, not quite surprised. Um, I think this is something we've been, we've been expecting for a while. And that's because, uh, we've been seeing lately Ontario's COVID case counts have been leveling off. Hospitalizations are holding steady. Uh, the health minister is telling us that contact tracing and testing is hitting its stride. So basically we're at a point now where Ontario thinks that we, we can manage this virus. Um, and we're ready to start reopening with, um, with, you know, with safety measures in place.
0: The Premier's always maintained uh, that uh, he's doing this usually on the advice of the medical professionals. Uh, do, do you get the sense that that dialogue has been ongoing with, for instance, Dr. Williams and, and others involved in this, to, to give him the thumbs up for something like this?
4: Yeah, well certainly, you know, um they they have been saying at every announcement you mentioned the premiers up every day that they're saying everything they're doing, every step is being on the is on the advice of the health officials uh and you know one thing that um Dr. David Williams has maintained throughout this whole time our top doctor uh, where where the is getting his advice from is that he's wanted to see uh covid cases, new cases every day consistently below the 200 mark. And Ontario has been at that at that point for a while and and he said that that is I guess maybe the level that that uh, is is manageable for our hospitals and our health system to be able to uh, get a grip on this thing, and so it seems that that's all following that that's all following um, health advice as well.
0: What do you think Phase Three is going to look like? I know we're going to probably get some details later on today from the premier and whichever ministers he has standing behind him there, uh, but but you know does Phase Three mean okay let's just open the doors and let's go nuts here, or is it's going to be a gradual thing?
4: Uh, it, it's certainly they've they've always maintained it's going to be a gradual thing, but you're right there's there's been few you know official details up until now, which is basically that uh, they're going to, all remaining workplaces will be able to reopen safely um and you know public gatherings will be relaxed. That doesn't really tell us much. Um they said for sure, concerts and uh, spectator sports, in-person spectator sports won't be coming back for the foreseeable future. And this is sort of all the official, the official word, but, uh, what we're hearing about, you know, just some rumors swirling around Queen's Park, uh, indoor dining could be coming back, gyms, movie theaters, uh, John Tory, Toronto Mayor, had suggested last week that playground equipment will be coming back. I think a lot of parents will be happy to hear that. Um, One other thing is that uh, like stage two happened last month, it's very likely that this will be a regional approach to reopening. So I think um, us in Toronto might be a little bit later to open than you guys in Hamilton, which has been um, better at, you know, uh, consistently having lower case numbers, you know, relatively speaking every day. I think, um, the last I checked, I think consistently Hamilton has been below five new cases every day, and that that is a, a good sign that, that you'll be one of the first to reopen into stage three.
0: If that happens uh, the way you're describing it, I've heard the same sort of speculation over the last couple mm-hmm. of days as to how this is going to work out. Uh, the good news is, okay, you can open your doors again. For instance, uh, well, let's use the example of indoor dining. Uh, the other side of that coin, though, it's going to be pretty much up to the individual businesses as to how they're going to do this. I mean, there's going to be some, some rules and regulations, but th- it's at their cost, isn't it? The, you know, the distancing, uh, plexiglass, whatever is going to have to go up there. there. To my knowledge, Sabrina, there's no government program to help them with that.
4: That's right. Yeah. And the premier has been asked about that. Um, and, and he has maintained, you know, if you don't feel safe, if you can't uh, put the safety guidelines in place, don't reopen. Um, but you know, NDP leader, Andrea Horvath represents, um, the hammer. She's, she's been calling for, uh, you know, save a save main street fund, which would, um, you know, be a, a government fund that businesses could dip into. And, uh, so you mentioned indoor dining, for instance, there might, they might be required to have plexiglass barriers. They might be required, um, to have a lot more sanitizing equipment, that sort of thing, um, which I think is, is a great thing. That's going to make uh, you know the general public feel safer about going out as well. But uh, those businesses are going to have uh, higher costs, and so we're we're waiting to see if the premier um, is going to fork out any more money for those for those businesses.
0: Yeah, I saw a video, I guess it was on YouTube a couple of days ago, someplace, I think it was in New York City, uh, where actually each table has its own little plexiglass cubicle, which is kind of nice, but that's going to be costly. I mean, not everybody can afford to do that. I mean, their their profit margins, if they have profit margins, are pretty small to begin with, and this is going to be rather onerous, I would think.
4: Yeah, it's it's just like another challenge because they've been dealing with you know these restrictions you know uh, just to keep on with with dining they've they've been restricted to outdoor patios or just takeout so they've already been struggling um, and I think that this is going to be another feat but uh, the the it, it remains to be seen if there if there's money coming but the premier has suggested that you know there are there are relatively cheaper options and he's even suggested you know instead of plexiglass you can use a, a cheaper plastic wrap and the government has, you know, an actual, like a pretty solid directory of businesses uh, that supply this equipment for for places like restaurants that want to seek it out. But in terms of government funding specifically for that, yeah, we, we haven't seen anything.
0: All right. Let's talk about the elephant in the room here when they make this announcement later on today, Sabrina. Uh, we've seen some jurisdictions south of the border that have done this, uh, and and some of them in a phased-in approach, such as we are doing here in Ontario uh, and it hasn't gone well. I mean, there has been a spike in the number of new cases. The the spread seems to be going on again, some worse than others. Uh, are your sources at Queen's Park telling you that, that that's a concern here too?
4: I, th- I think, uh, you know, there's always going to be a concern about future flare-ups. Uh, or even a second wave down the road. And the, the government is, is saying now, the government line is that if that does happen, if there are small flare-ups, which they are sort of anticipating with these reopenings, um, you know, maybe small blips, they think that, that that's manageable. Um, I think the the onus is really going to be on the public here. And like you mentioned, businesses taking their precautions as well. Uh, you know, the risk is still out there. Uh, health officials will say that, you um, the, the risk hasn't really, the, nothing really changed in terms of the risk. It's still important to keep your distance, you know, wash your hands, not touch your face, maintaining the proper hygiene. But I think that now we are starting to see what the so-called new normal might look like. And um, yeah, I guess this is a bit of a bit of an experiment happening. But that's why the government is being careful with a gradual approach.
0: Well, yeah, because I think the last thing they want to do, and we heard this from uh, the governors of California and Texas over the uh, the weekend, say, you know, the, the worst-case scenario is they have to go back to square one and, and do a shutdown again. And, uh, you know, these businesses that have been suffering for so long right now could really not afford a second shutdown, could they?
4: Yeah, that's that's I think that's that's the that's the consensus and that's the feeling. You know, we had job numbers come out uh, last week for Ontario, and it was the first time. You know, unemployment rate is still twelve point two percent, which is which is major. But it was the first time that the unemployment rate had gone down, and um, many are attributing that to, uh, you know, the gradual reopenings that slowly started to happen last month in June. And so I think that with with reopenings, with businesses being able to adapt, so that generally, you know, the economic situation is looking a little bit is looking a, a little bit rosier, you know, uh, just relatively speaking. And so I think that there is an opportunity for businesses to be able to come back, but they will still be needing, I think, uh, you know, for, for months, you know, they'll, they'll be needing support from from government
0: what do you speculate at this stage about uh, what's going to be happening at the legislature itself i mean if they're if going to have more gatherings and, and by the way you, you, I, I want to reiterate what you just said it's just not all holds barred i mean we're not going to fill stadiums or anything like that i think it's going to go from maybe 10 to 20 or 25 people or something like that it's going to be very staged mm-hmm. but what about the legislature itself i mean a lot of people would like to see some more bodies there having queens park meet on a regular basis and as much as as covid is still an important and probably the priority for the government there's other business too that's not getting done so when 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 do they get back to work?
4: Yeah, so the House has been sitting, um, you know, not as regularly as they normally do. They've been sitting three times a week this month, but they're going to rise for the rest of the summer next month. And you're right, the government um, pushed through a few of its bills, uh, but the opposition is not really happy with, you know, them uh, speeding things through. So we're not getting as much committee times, public hearings uh, on legislation. There's no private members business. The opposition can't really uh, discuss what, what they want to debate in the House. So uh, the House has been very careful in um, social distancing, like the, to vote, the MPPs need to line up around the block, basically, uh, you know, making sure they're all distanced apart, which takes about half an hour, which is something that just takes, you know, a minute or two in normal time. Mm-hmm. So so they are they are um, making a lot of uh, adjustments to come back to the legislature. But uh, like you said, these restrictions will be in place for some time, um, and they, the government will ex- exempt... Uh, the legislature itself, like there has been uh, more than 10 MPPs, let's say in the chamber uh, this time, but there's no gatherer that's not allowed uh, in other places. So so they will be exempt in order to be able to do their work. But uh, they are also trying to pass Bill 195 uh, before the House rises, which um, would keep the emergency orders that we're talking about and these restrictions in place for up to two years. So even if we move into stage three and the state of emergency is lifted uh, as planned, you know, uh, next week or the week after, then we're still going to have these uh, tough restrictions in place for a, at least another year.
0: Well, and that's a very contentious bill, and uh, and I know that the opposition yeah. parties, both Ms. Horvath and, of course, Mr. Del Duca, have raised some concerns about not having proper debate and, and going through the process like this. That's always going to be the, the argument being made, though, that they're just ramming stuff through. And uh, you know, we talked with uh, Richard Brennan, of course, who covered Queens Park for many years last week on the program, and he raised Mm -hmm. the same concerns that this is a. It could be very easily characterized as just a power grab. Now, they're not. They're not saying that's what it is, but but there don't seem to be any restrictions. I mean, is this going to be in place for another three months or another three years? We really don't know at this stage, do we?
4: Yeah, and, um, I, I have heard, you know, the opposition call it a power grab, and I know the, uh, Canadian Civil Liberties Association isn't, isn't happy with the sweeping powers that the government's giving itself, and, you know, the, the Ford government has a majority, too, so I think a lot of people were wondering why do they need to have these, uh, powers when the government could basically do this stuff anyway, uh, which is more debate in the House about it. Um, I think, you know, the government's line is that they, they think that this is more of like how they can manage, uh, the, the orders and, you know, they can't introduce brand new ones. Um, they've already laid out the orders that they want to keep going in the bill. So they think that they're, from their end, they're being transparent, um, in managing this. I, I had heard, uh, one insider say there's no room for an opposition in a pandemic. So I think they are, uh, wielding their majority as expected. Um, one, one thing just in terms of transparency is that the bill Ensures that a minister or the premier comes to a committee uh, every time an emergency order is extended or changed, and so they'll basically have to come to a committee which has opposition members and and will be publicly uh, uh, either either streamed or you know available on Hansard. Is that they'll have to justify and explain why they're extending these orders? Uh, So there there is not going to be a the same accountability that we might see when you debate a bill in the house but that will happen on the committee side
0: so many questions i, I wish we had more time we're just about out of time right now but uh, we'll have to do that for a, a future session sabrina always yeah, a pleasure absolutely. thanks so much we'll uh, be watching for your reporting uh, in the hours and days ahead as they roll through this thanks for the time today
4: thanks bill hope you're keeping safe
0: we are so far so good thanks again sabrina nine queens park today the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 chml